Hey, everybody. The October 2021 Roundup was brought to you by Fun Again Games. And welcome once again, folks. It is that time. On the first of every month, I try to get in front of a camera and tell you all about all the games my wife Jen and I played over the preceding four weeks. And this month is no different. Got a whole bunch of games to talk about, and not just stuff I played, also some stuff that Shay played, and very excitingly for me, some stuff that Ruel Gaviola played, the new third contributor to the channel. For folks who have been hanging around for a while, you may have seen Ruel. Um, showing up because we've been doing a weekly R&R show for quite a while now. Oh, and by the way, if you are an R&R devotee, please bear in mind, starting the month of November, um, we're moving to Tuesdays at noon, Pacific Standard Time, and it's going to be on Twitch. It'll appear on YouTube the following day. Anyway, that's a little bit of housekeeping. But more importantly than the R&R show, as much as I enjoy doing it, it's literally my favorite thing I do for my Rado Runs Through channel these days, Ruel has actually started doing run-throughs himself. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what he uh, did. Shay is going to tell you a little bit about what Shay covered, and then we'll get to the countdown, the actual proper countdown, where I will ultimately crown a new game of the month. Okay, folks, with all of that preamble out of the way, I think I am ready to go. If I can find my PowerPoint tab, I think I've got it. Okay, so, Shay Parker, take it away. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey folks, so I covered three games this month, but before I talk about any of those, I also did a run-through of sorts of something that is not a game, which is this table. This is the uh, Dresden table from Bandpass Design, and they sent me in exchange for a little preview video of it. So I showed off the table, gave some uh, thoughts on its like features and stuff, and whether I think it's a good value. And also, I'm just really proud of that video. I got to stretch some creative muscles, and I really enjoyed making it. So if you haven't already, uh, go and check that out. Um, I had a lot of fun. And also, if you're in the market for a gaming table, you can definitely do worse than the uh, Dresden right here. I think it's got some really cool features to it. Now, let's get into uh, the games that I uh, covered this this month, and they are starting with my number three, we have City of the Great Machine. Now, this is a cat and mouse game where one player is playing as the Great Machine, which is this AI that controls the city, and the other players are revolutionaries who are trying to fight against the system. You're trying to get different citizens on your side to help out and uh, participate in riots. As the heroes, you'll win if you complete three riots. And as the machine, you'll win if you can complete your master plan, and after which point, citizen rebellion doesn't matter. Now, this game did some really cool stuff. There's uh, some interesting mechanics where you can move uh, different parts of the board around because the, the map is modular and ends up being part of the uh, actions of some of the locations that you can pick them up and move them around, which completely changes the just the layout of things. And there's a lot of interesting like guesswork where you are, as the machine player, you're trying to guess where the other player is going to go because they have this interesting mechanic of they decide their locations and then you do you take your turn and move your servants around and try and anticipate their actions. And if you can, sometimes you can lock them up before they can do what they're uh, trying to do, or you can advance your master plan. There's a lot of different things you can do, a lot of things to keep in mind. Some really cool mechanics. The only reason that it's at the bottom of my list is that I think it's really just best at a four-player count. Uh, you can play it two or three players. If you're playing two players, the hero player is controlling three heroes. If you're playing three players, they're controlling one player is controlling two, and the other player is controlling one. That ends up being a little awkward, but I think controlling three players is a little too much. So four players really seems like the best way to do it. And for me, I don't always get four players at the table that often. So that's, for me, why it's at the bottom of the list. But otherwise, I think it's a really cool game. Uh, 
Uh, next up, we have Circadian's Chaos Order. And this is a big asymmetric area control game. I love the theming of it. I love how different all the different alien factions are from each other. You're trying to go across the map controlling these relic spaces that get randomly put out on the board. And if you can control all of them, then you win the game. But you're probably not going to control all of them right away. So every, every round, one of them is going to get removed. So, you know, you're just trying to control whatever's left. But on top of that, every player has their own score tracker and they have different values for each, each faction because you score in completely different ways. So one uh, faction uh, controls based on how many technologies they research. Another faction has these ongoing ability effects that are like, uh, if, I can, if I put this out, I might get some passive you know, point income every round, or I can do another side, which will get me uh, increased strength in combat. So there's always these really interesting choices going on. And then the set or the gameplay of it follows a really interesting structure where at the beginning of the game, you have this track on the left side of the board, and there are five different actions, which are like do research, build buildings, recruit troops, move things around, and oh, there's one more. Oh, uh, harvest resources. It's kind of 4 xy a little bit. But before you take any of those actions, and you take them in turn, uh, like in the, a specific order, you set the prices for those actions. So each player will get to put a pricing tile on one action, and that means they're gonna be able to do that for free, but the other players will have to pay that cost, partially to the bank, but sometimes partially to you in order to take that action. So you're anticipating what's important for the other players, and also, you know, like holding onto the tiles that you still have for future turns, because once you place them, they go away, and you have to put a specific tile to get any of them back. And that specific tile, it's not, uh, doesn't cost your opponents that much. So that adds a completely different layer of things of like trying to figure out and you know, getting in other people's heads to figure out what's valuable to them. But at the same time, you've got to deal with the strategy on the map. Uh, so there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. I, I really enjoyed the game. Again, two player, not my favorite way to go. I think you need three or more. Uh, and then it really shines because you've got these different factions that, like I said, have different scoring abilities, but they also have different, um, just different gameplay elements to them. They're very, very different from each other. So, I mean, you're still playing the same game. It's not as, as different as, say, Root, but you've got a lot of unique elements. And a lot of those things, even your specific faction rules, they can be upgraded. A lot of really cool stuff there. But like I said, two players, it can be a little bit like King of the Hill. Someone can kind of snowball and win that way, which is not my favorite thing. Again, I play a lot of two-player games, so there's that. But I think three players or more, I think it does really, really well. So that was my number two, Circadian's Chaos Order. Oh, that one uh, was a paid preview. So was uh, uh, City of the Great Machine. Um, but my number one uh, was not a paid preview. My number one is Unfathomable. This is the re-theming of Battlestar Galactica game, and I think it is fantastic. Now, I've played the Battlestar Galactica game, and I liked it, but I always had trouble getting other people interested in it because I like Battlestar Galactica, but my friends don't. Uh, so Unfathomable is something that I can actually get my friends to come to the table for. I think it's, you know, it's got that kind of Cthulhu-y mythos. It's you're facing up against deep ones and uh, these two monarchs, the Mother Hydra and Father Dagon, these big, like, chunky uh, minis miniatures that, you know, they're, they're going to attack your ship and they're going to try and sink your ship and you have to, you know, make it all the way to shore, which is pretty far away. You got to fight off the little fish monsters that are attacking you. You have to complete these uh, skill checks that are happening every round. Otherwise, you'll lose some of your resources or get hurt in some ways. You got a bunch of resources that you need to stop from uh, depleting too quickly. And all the while, someone is probably a traitor. At the beginning of the game, you're dealt out hidden roll cards and uh, they'll say human or uh, hybrid, which is like full traitor, uh, or cultist, which is like you're a traitor, but you need to get the ship most of the way to shore before you actually sink it. Otherwise, you lose too. But the, the tricky thing about it is you're dealt out a card at the beginning of the game. But that's only half of the identity cards that are going to be a part of your game. Because if uh, because once you reach halfway to your destination, you deal out another round of cards. So you don't know. If you're a human from the first draw, you might still be a traitor on the second draw. And then on top of that... Uh, when you reveal as a trader, if you have two cards, you only reveal one of them and you give the other card to another player. That aspect of it, I absolutely love. It keeps things tense. It makes 
it makes it so that if you got both trader cards that you're not, you know, stuck without any help. It also means that you get to cast a little bit of doubt on other players and just shake things up. You, you most, for the most part, you're working together and the game is pretty hard, but even as the trader, you are still expected to, to help out. And you know, you want to keep things close to the vest. Like, uh, you want to you know, be a good trader. You want to be secretive about it. But what I really liked about uh, Unfathomable is that you don't need to be really good at keeping secrets in order to win as the trader, because you can reveal yourself as a trader, like on of your own volition. You get have a special ability. Each character has their own special ability for when you do that, and that's really cool. But on top of that, once you reveal as a trader, you have more abilities that you can do that specifically are for you know sinking the ship. And that means that you don't have to be really good at these kinds of strategic deduction games in order to be good at this game, in order to, to do well as the trader. You don't have to be great at keeping secrets. You don't have to be great at lying. The game is really good about obfuscating, <coughs> obfuscating specifics so you, know, you can't always know until someone reveals. And then once you reveal, you are still in the running for it. A lot of games, you reveal and then you're out. Or like someone figures you out and then you can't really do anything. But in this, you definitely still have a chance. So uh, so that is my number one game of the month, Unfathomable. Um, but again, I liked all of the games that I played. And uh, if you can go ahead and check out that uh, Dresden table review, uh, I would really appreciate it. Uh, but those are my games for the month. And I will pass it back to you, Rada. And thanks, Shay. That was some very, very cool stuff. And uh, folks, I'm not going to get to my countdown yet because, as I said right up front, uh, October was a very exciting month. We have our new contributor, Mr. Ruel Gaviola, who is a friend of mine. I have enjoyed his stuff ever since he started streaming last year with his wife and daughter and their adorable pug, Bruno. So anyway, Ruel did three run-throughs this month, and they were all live. And if you were there to watch him live, you actually got to play along with him because he's doing these audience participation videos. He did one for Roll Camera, uh, and these were his final thoughts for Roll Camera. Now, of course, I've already talked at great length about Roll Camera. Oh my goodness, so much Roll Camera. So I'm not going to spend much time with this, and next month we'll have to see if I can get Ruel to record his own little testimonials the way that Shay did, because you'd rather hear what he thinks about the games. But for now, you're going to have to hear about... Well, again, I'm not talking about Roll Camera. It's probably going to be my game of the year. Let's talk about Ruel's next game he covered, World Auto Racing, um, which is a very cool collectible card game all about Fast and the Furious... I mean, I'm talking original Fast and the Furious. Fast and Furious 1 and 2 style street racing, um, all done with a, with a hand of cards and dealing with inclement weather, upgrading your car, doing all kinds of stuff. Now, this game is actually coming to Kickstarter, and it was a paid preview uh, that Ruel did. He also did the paid preview for Roll Camera. And... Uh, he definitely... I've talked to him after he filmed. He liked this game a lot. And he expects it's going to be a really big hit when it goes live on Kickstarter in November. And uh, yeah, it looks really cool. I think the from what I've watched of his run-through so far, and I do plan to watch the whole thing, um, which is, you know, available... Uh, I was really impressed by the very, very cool holographic rainbow-colored cards they've got for the cars. Really, really neat stuff. But it looks like if you enjoy... Fast and the Furious-style hijinks. And again, I'm talking about street racing, not international spy stuff. Uh, and you like card games, then you might, according to Ruel, want to check out World Auto Racing. But Ruel wasn't done. He also did a live playthrough of Perpetuity. And now this one was much more interesting to me. It, this game can be played cooperatively or competitively, although I think at its heart it's a co-op game. It can also be played solo. And what we're trying to do is save a whole bunch of inhabitants of a bunch of planets that are about to get wiped out because their star is going to go supernova. And so we are doing some very, very clever delayed action worker placement. You know, placing workers now so they will activate later. Think kind of of Kalis, but 
a bit more intricate. And uh, we're doing it to harvest the resources to build the ships so that we can evacuate the aliens and save as many lives as possible. And the coolest thing about this game is actually the um, central board that represents the solar system rotates. It's, got, it's kind of like on a spinning, oh, what do you call it, a Lazy Susan type situation. And as the game goes on and all these planets are orbiting around the star, it will change the fundamental layout of what you're going to interact with as you're trying to launch your ships and save people. Again, you can watch Ruel's uh, uh, paid live stream he did of this. The game... Is it live on Kickstarter now? I believe it is. I'm not quite sure. Um, but uh, you can learn more there. And in closing, let me just say, Ruel is doing a great job. Uh, we've got a couple more games for him to be covered lined up in November. If the stars align, you'll be seeing more of him soon. But that's it, folks. Contributors are done. So, now, let's move on to what some people consider to be the main event, Jen's and my countdown of the games of the month. So, let's start out with number 15, Tabanusi. And I am sure there are folks out there who are saying, What? Tabanusi? At the bottom of the list? How could this be? It's an incredible game from uh, Board and Dice Games. It's the latest in the T-series. And don't get me wrong, folks. Do not be misled by my ranking. This is a brilliant, brilliant... Euro Design. This is probably the heaviest board game I have played this year. And I played a lot of, of big, heavy ones. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, this game, I wouldn't say is like super complex. It's just really deep. As we are trying to build up these almost prehistory era um, cities... It's a game of, you know, gathering goods and converting them into other goods to build stuff to score points, like most Euros. The thing that I think really sets Tabanusi apart more than anything else is the interdependency between players, because this is a game where, oh, you don't just pay some stone and build a building. No, you have to prepare the build site, and that costs stuff. Then you have to build, but you have to get your architect into the right place at the right time to be able to interact with the space and do it. And the thing is, what will often happen, you'll find in this game, is projects that you start other players will finish. There's so much interdependency between players. But then, if other players finish the project, that gives you the opportunity to build up ancillary stuff around the project. So, in this game, it is so deep and crunchy because you are so like a hawk watching what every other player is going to do. Yeah, I was trying to set my own thing here, but oh my god, you've created something that's even better for me to deal with. Although, you've got a really, just wonderfully clever action selection system to let to let you choose. Because, uh, basically, this is a dice drafting game. And I I love dice drafting. One of my favorite mechanisms. Every round, there's several different silos of dice. You start out standing next to one of them. You take a die out of the silo, and the number on that die tells you what area of the board you're going to deal with next round. So there's a really interesting mix of immediate and short-term and long-term planning and then on top of that, the way the world is constantly changing and evolving in ways that you can take advantage of because of what your opponents have done, make Tabanusi a brilliant design. Why did it come in at number 15 then? Sometimes this happens for me and Jen. A game is too heavy. There's just too much going on, and it just kind of makes our brains melt down. Tabanusi is one of those. One of those ones that I imagine will probably end up getting a 3.8 or something like that on Board Game Geek as more people play it. It just goes a little bit over the edge. Um, also, uh, not for nothing, I would have loved to see the wonderful solo mode. It has a really smart solo mode which is why I demonstrated in my run-through. I'd love to see that be usable in a two-player game so we can get the equivalent of a third player in the, in the mix. Because a game that is all about seeing what your opponents are doing and responding to that is going to be more interesting with more opponents. So as a two-player game, I think some of the special sauce of this game is lost. Because often, you can start and finish your own projects. Because there's only one other player moving around and interacting with the world. So... It's a smart design, but that, uh, you know, the, I, I would have liked to see it just a little bit more for two player. And I mean, and again, for me and Jen, maybe just a slightly um, less heavy experience, but a brilliant design, my number 15 of the month, Tabanusi. Then we move on to number 14, Paris, the city of lights, or La Cité de Lumière. Um, this is a really clever double-decker tile layer, is what I like to think of it as, because the game plays in two halves. The first half of the game, we are building, we are laying tiles that will become the foundation of what we can build on. 
kind of like Tabanusi. And we have a communal area we're growing to. So for the first half of the game, on your turn, you're either laying a tile to try to set up the ideal building layout that you'll use in the second half, or you're snagging one of these very cool um, dual-layer Tetris pieces that represent the buildings you're building. Once all the buildings have been grabbed, and you know, and that's a tough choice right off the bat. Do I prioritize building the perfect street level so I can do what I want to do later, or do I grab those tiles before my opponent does? But anyway, once you finish the first half, you go to the second half, where now that the streets have all been laid, you are trying to build those buildings that you grabbed in the first half of the game, and you're also racing to be the first to unlock all the special powers that were set up randomly as part of setup. It's really, really sharp. Um, a two-player only game, and Jen and I thought it was very uh, engaging. I love the, uh, I love the, like I said, double-decker tile laying because first you lay the first layer, and then you build on top of that. And half of what you're building on was created by your opponent, and that's really the only problem with the game. This can be fairly cutthroat. You can definitely, as you're playing, make moves that will scupper your opponent's plans. Oh, I can see how uh, you've got that really crazy. Um, shaped Tetris piece, this is the only place on the board you could possibly build. It'd be a real shame if I built there first, wouldn't it? Oh, too bad. I just did. And now you're going to lose points because you can't build that building anymore. So, for folks who like really intricate and unique tiling experiences and don't mind, um, you know, basically taking the, uh, the the tiny bit of screwage that exists in Carcassonne and pumping it up to 11, you might want to check out our number 14 of the month, Paris, City of Lights. Okay, now let's move on to number 13, The Siege of Runadar, which I really enjoyed this one quite a bit. I have to admit, it's um, maybe coming in a little low because for my wife, she this was not as fun as some of the other cooperative games because this is, interestingly, from designer Reiner Knizia. And if you were just to look at this board, you would think there is no way Reiner Knizia designed this game. He's the guy who does those really dry, dusty Euros, right? No. This is a tower defense or a castle defense game where players are dwarves with unique powers who are running all around, jumping, climbing up the battlements, getting into the towers, you know, shooting after at the waves of orcs that are coming for us every round, trying to overrun our castle and steal all our gold. And while we're fighting them off, we're also trying to make time to build up to get better and stronger weapons so we can fight them. And the whole thing is driven by a very smart card system. Uh, this, is, this isn't a, car, a deck builder, it's a deck upgrader, because over the course of the game, you can get new cards to put into your deck, replacing old cards. Is that right? I might be mixing that up with another game we played this month. I'm pretty sure you... No, you always have a fixed number of cards in your deck. So as you get new ones, you replace old ones. It's very, very sharp, very fun, but very very family-friendly. This is the very definition of a gateway-style family cooperative game. This, I think, plays, in terms of depth and complexity, around the same level as Flashpoint Fire Rescue. And Flashpoint Fire Rescue is very well-loved. But it's too light for me and Jen, and so was Siege of Runadar. So while I thought it was very clever, really atmospheric, some very, very neat touches, like you know being able to actually leave the castle and run around um, and try to kill the bad guys before they ever even set foot. And the way um, you know special power ogres will show up at key moments, and um, goblins who you don't fight, but you bribe them to leave. But then if you're bribing them, you don't have your stuff to build your upgrades. Really neat stuff. And more than anything else, I love that the insert for this game becomes a core central element of the game. Because when you set up, you've got a real, um, what do you call it? Uh, a full-on castle that you're trying to defend. So, uh, that was our number 13, Siege of Runadar. Or maybe it's Runedar, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but again, a great gateway family co-op fantasy adventure game. Okay, now let's move on to number 12. Picture perfect. And now, speaking of uh, lightweight, uh, family-friendly gateway games, picture perfect, oh, fits that picture to a T. This is a very sharp game. I, I would almost call it a party game. Um, although it is a party game that does play very well with two players, which is very rare. The focus of your game in uh, Picture Perfect is to arrange a whole bunch of people uh, into, uh, in into a on your board so that you can take 
the perfect picture. But the thing is, all these different photo subjects, they have different wants and needs that were generated randomly. And most of it is secret. Does the Darwin-looking guy want to be next to the dog? Or does he want to be nowhere near the dog? Does he want to be in the background? Does he want to be in the foreground? At the beginning of the game, I don't know. But you might, because each player gets a certain number of envelopes with special needs, kind of almost like Clue. You know how you put the cards in Clue, and you're trying to figure out what's in those cards? Imagine Clue with like 13 different envelopes full of stuff and you only have access to a handful of them, and your opponents have the other ones. And so, you're trying to arrange what you do know about these people, and as you play through the rounds, there are all these events that let you sneak peeks at what everybody else knows, or engage in auctions to get more information. And at the end of all the rounds, you've, you've lined them up as best you can. Maybe you've left some people out of the picture, because you don't know what they want. And if you can't meet any of their needs, you will actually lose points instead of gain points. But at the end of the game, everything is revealed, we score up everybody, and if you want to, um, as Jen and I did, you can take the final picture uh, of your picture perfect and use that as your scoring. You don't need to, though. You, uh, uh, some people are upset because, oh, I need a smartphone to play this game. It is not required at all. It's just a fun little extra that at the end of it, you can actually take that perfect picture you've been trying to make. Very sharp, very fun, but it is still at its heart a party game. And Jen, I got to play it as a two-player game. It worked. We would enjoy it again. But you wouldn't want to own this game as a two-player game. You want to own this as something you can play with a large group of people, so all the information is distributed amongst everybody, and you're constantly trying to figure out, right, who should I go fish with? Okay, um, you know, I I'd like to know about that dog. You have the dog, right? You know, the more players, the merrier with our number 12. Picture perfect. Then we move on to number 11, Castle Party. Oh my goodness, this game is a uh, not a roll and write, a flip and write, where we are trying to do Tetris-style polyomino tiling, and the uh, polyominoes, you know, the S-shape and the L-shape, the Tetris pieces, represent a whole bunch of different monsters. Ghosts, vampires, and Frankenstein's monster-type creatures that um, are we're trying to lay out in the perfect way on the dance floor of our castle party. And you're trying to get the vampires with the vampires, and the ghosts with the ghosts. But there are also extra things you're trying to get certain types of characters into certain spots, because they like the sound system, or they want to be close to a window so they can look outside. So you've got all these things going on. And you know, that doesn't sound that dissimilar, right? Okay, well, uh, you know, you've played other games. You might have played cartographers, let's say. I understand the idea of doing these Tetris pieces and putting them and trying to jigsaw puzzle them together to score the most points. Here's the thing that makes Castle Party different. Players build the Tetris pieces. It's far out. Um, before you actually get to draw the S-shape or the L-shape or the square-shaped piece, um, players take turns playing cards from their hands that represent the uh, top of the L or the middle of the S or whatever. And ultimately, once all the players have built these Tetris pieces together, then you take that Tetris piece and you put it in your castle. So there's like this whole extra level of crunchiness and I gotta say, folks, this is a very, very crunchy game. This is much heavier than Cartographers, because you are having... Um, you know, okay, I know I've, I've got a couple of ghosts in my hand. I'd like to get them together on this thing, because I could get them over close to this really big group of ghosts I already have on the board, and that's all very, very cool. And, oh, I've even gotten them together! Hooray! And I can see it's not going to help you much, because you don't have a big group of ghosts, so you get a couple of ghosts that are going to be kind of orphaned, so no big deal. But every player has a group of special powers we can use to manipulate the Tetris piece, because we all share this common Tetris piece. And if you end up rotating it, all the plans I was doing might go out the window, and now, oh, it's now it's, it's rotating 90 degrees, and it won't fit what I was going to do! Can I get another ghost to connect them together and all that? It's sharp. It's fun. It's simple to understand, simple to teach, but really, really crunchy. Now, I guess maybe at a higher player count, because Jen, I only played it at two, which means each player gets to build two of the four sections of the polyominoes. At a higher player count, you're only going to get to build one, so maybe that's a little bit more frustrating. I've only played it at two. We were really impressed. Again, the only reason it comes in at the lower end of our rating list is because... Oh my gosh, there were so many times as Jen and I were playing that we were like, Oh, Honey Pie, I'm so sorry. I know this is exactly what you need, but boom! She's like, No! Uh, this game, um, you know, either on purpose uh, or totally by accident, you can constantly be ruining the plans of other players. And now, that's okay um, if, if you don't mind that. Uh, but for me and Jen, uh, there were two things. One, uh, we were constantly messing with each other, and we didn't necessarily want to do that. And two, 
I can't stress just how crunchy this is. I mean, um, we actually tried to play a run-through, Jen and I filming a game of it for our Patreon backers this month, and we got about halfway through the game, and we realized, oh my gosh, this is going to be the worst video we've ever done, because the whole thing was us sitting and crunching and thinking in silence and just groaning, because it is much, much deeper than your typical roll and write. So if you're looking for something with a lot of crunch, a fair bit of screw thatness, and a really unique approach to Tetris E tiling in a flip and write formula, you might want to check out my number 11 of the month, Castle Party. And now we move on to my number 10, Seven Wonders Architects. Now I think this is going to be a big, big game. Uh, because of course, Seven Wonders is one of the biggest... Uh, it's not really a board game. It's a card game at its heart. There's no real board. One of the biggest modern designer card games have ever come out. Probably one of the most important and influential games to have come out you know, in the last two decades, quite frankly, because it really popularized the idea of card drafting and so many card drafting games and games that just use card drafting as one of their many mechanisms ever since Seven Wonders caught Fire. And Seven Wonders, for the longest time, was in my top 10 games of all time. It recently fell uh, very, very precipitously, but for reasons that are neither here nor there. Anyway, though, what's interesting is, many, many years later, I don't know, maybe it's in time for an anniversary or something like that, Seven Wonders Architects comes out, and it looks like Seven Wonders. It's in the same setting as Seven Wonders, but oh my gosh, this is a very different game. This is a very, very lightweight... Again, I played several family-level gateway-style games this month. And um, you know, while they were all a little bit too light for me and Jen, that's why Seven Wonders Architect comes in at the low end, oh my gosh, I would so love to play this game with my niece and nephew. I, I think it would be perfect. I could imagine maybe playing this with my mom as well. Here's the deal. Um, everybody picks one, um, one ancient wonder of the world they're going to build. And that means they get a deck of cards that they shuffle up, and their neighbor... To the left and to the right, they also have cards that they shuffle up. And when you sit down to the table, I've got access to all my cards. I've got access to this common deck of cards on the middle of the table. And I've got access to all of your cards. Player sitting to my right, I think. I think it's the player to my right. And on my turn, it's super simple. I either take one of my cards, because I can see them face up. I take one of your cards, which I can see face up on your deck. Or if I don't like either of those, I draw blind from the central deck. And then whatever the card is, I just do what it says. Uh, I get building materials that let me build my wonder. I get gold, which is a wild card. I get science. I get... um Oh, what are they called? This, uh, the luxury? The culture stuff. All of the beats, the warfare, pretty much everything you expect in Seven Wonders is here. But it's all simplified and streamlined down to be a very, very fast and fun game where on your turn, you just make one turn. I take that card, that card, or that card. I build. I'm getting closer and closer to finishing my wonder, or I'm getting closer and closer to getting big points with science, or I'm getting, I'm building my army closer and closer so that when we have a little war, I'll score points and you won't. It works really nicely. All the beats of Seven Wonder broken down into a true gateway game. Because people have always said... I've never understood why people say the uh, Seven Wonders is a great gateway game. It's a terrible gateway game. Trying to teach a game where you can't see somebody's cards and there's five billion icons? This is the Seven Wonders that you use to convert um, you know, newbies into board game geeks. And I think it would do it very well. It only comes in on our run-through, our countdown, a little low, because it is still very, very light. I'm seriously considering keeping this around just in case I need a great intro into modern board games because Seven Wonders Architects is perfect for that. It's fast. It's also like a 15-minute game. Um, and it's really, really sharp. My number 10 of the month, Seven Wonders Architects. Then we move on to number 9, World of Warcraft Wrath of the Lich King. And actually, there's a, a second subtitle to this. A Pandemic System game. And that's why I was so excited to play this game. Because Pandemic is my favorite game of all time. One of the greatest co-op games of all time. Uh, probably, maybe the most influential game. Um, you know, Seven Wonders is very influential. Nothing beats Pandemic in you know, such a seismic shift in the overall direction of the modern board game industry. Never mind the fact that it is thanks to World of Warcraft, Wrath of the Lich King, that Jen and I became hardcore board game enthusiasts. So I owe Pandemic everything. But let's put all that aside. What does World of Warcraft, Wrath of the Lynch King offer? Because it takes the core structure of Pandemic, which is a firefighting game. We are players, we have special powers, we're running around 
the map trying to fight the spread of whatever terrible thing, whether it's disease in the original pandemic or the undead ghouls in Wrath of the Lich King. So we're trying to fight the spread of them while also completing objectives. And it's always about splitting your focus between those two things. Wrath of the Lich King is very interesting because it is... I'm not going to... I mean, how to put it? Pandemic can be a little cerebral. It can be a little dry. You're just fighting the spread of cubes. Here, you've got tons of little miniatures, and some of the miniatures are huge, and they actually chase you around. And you don't just try to set collect to get cards together. You actually go on quests where you have to roll dice to you know fight off dangers and use cards to supplement the dice rolls and all that kind of stuff. And it does it very well. In fact, if you watch my final thoughts for the video, you'll see... I loudly trumpeted, this has got to be one of the best roll-to-resolve implementations I have ever seen. Uh, it's so brilliant, in large part because you can play your cards after you roll instead of having to commit them before. But there's actually a lot of really clever design ideas in here that makes this its own beast. It is not just a recreation of Pandemic with a new layer of paint on top. And it's very sharp. Jen and I enjoyed it quite a bit. It comes in at number 9 because this is designed as another light, easy-to-teach, family-friendly gateway game because it's trying to convert fans of World of Warcraft, at one point the biggest video game on the planet, um, into board game fans. And I think it's perfect for that. For me and Jen, we're used to playing really heavy, crunchy Pandemic with a half a dozen expansions turned on. So for us, it was a little bit too lightweight. But for what it intends to do, it does it brilliantly. And it's my number nine of the month, World of Warcraft, Wrath of the Lich King. Then we move on to number eight, Power Plants, which was a paid Kickstarter preview. It's I think the Kickstarter just started a week ago or so. It's already doing very well. And this is a very, very sharp um, tile-laying game um, where players are laying these very, very cool tiles that represent different types of plants that have all kinds of uh, magical powers associated with them. And on your turn, you've got two to choose from, and you're going to play one of them to the common garden. And you're just, you know, the garden is building up bigger and bigger over the course of the game. And um, you've got little fantasy sprites who are your helpers. You're trying to get those sprites on different plants in the garden because there's an area control element for scoring points at the end of the game. And um, you know sometimes they can score points in different ways. But the most important thing is, you pick whatever tile you're going to play, which is going to have a unique power, and the game comes with eight plants, and there's only going to be five every time you play. So each time you play, there's going to be a very, very different combination of powers. They'll be able to combo in different sorts of ways. But anyway, you take that, you apply it to the garden, and then you have to make the truly important decision. Are you going to activate the tile you just placed for a really big powerful boost? Or are you instead going to activate every tile that is adjacent to the tile you just placed for little baby powers? And that is awesome. Because, you know, I mean, this, the main powers are really, really great, especially in the early game. But once this uh, garden starts getting bigger and more complex, if you can place and do like four special little baby actions that can combo in all kinds of ways and give you big points and control of the board. It's a wonderfully smart and puzzly game. I'm very, very impressed by it. The presentation is fantastic. Uh, again, another super simple, easy-to-teach game, but with real depth and meat to the decisions. Again, the only problem? It is an aggressive game. A sizable portion. Several of the plants you can do are all about messing with your opponents, kicking their sprites off the board that they've worked so hard to try to carve out their little section of the garden. And it was just a little bit too much for me and Jen. Man, if... Everybody had their own private garden that they were working on, and you know the powers were all associated around that. This could have been in my top three of the month, easily. Because that core puzzle, do I activate the one tile, or do I activate all the adjacents, is brilliant. And I just want to see that transposed into a game that doesn't have any um, cutthroatedness in it. Um, but even still... In spite of that, it comes in much higher than uh, several other games. Uh, and in fact, actually, my wife loved it. Uh, people don't often realize, in our gaming relationship, I'm the Care Bear. I'm the one who likes to avoid conflict. This game really brought out my wife's inner shark. And when we played this, it was Care Bear versus Shark. And she was ripping me apart and having a great time doing it. So, you just gotta know going in that that is a potentially not insignificant part of the game. And if you like that, you definitely owe it to yourself to check out my number eight, Power Plants. Then we go on to number seven, Hegemony. This is a paid Kickstarter preview. I believe it's going to go live sometime in November. I just got to an early playthrough of it, and oh my gosh, folks, watch for this one. This was a paid Kickstarter preview. Bear that in mind, but 
People have been asking me literally for years, Rado, when are you going to design a board game? And I say, never, never going to do it. But then the second follow-up question is always, well, if you were going to design a board game, what would it be? I now have an answer. It would be hegemony. Because this is a game set in an unnamed modern nation on, on, on planet Earth. And each player, when you sit down at the table, takes on a completely different uh, control of a different member or a, a faction of society. One player is the working class, one player is the capitalist class, one player is the middle class, and one player is the government. And this is a very asymmetric game because everybody is playing their own unique game with their own unique needs, their own unique wants, their own unique special powers. And everybody has a very, very thick deck of very, very cool, very thematic... Um, action cards. And every year, and I think the game takes place over six years, or actually it's every decade, uh, you have eight cards, and over the course of the decade, you're going to play six of them. You either play them to do whatever it says on the card, or you discard them to activate one of your basic actions. So this is a multi-use card game to the max, and... Oh my gosh. I mean, I mentioned this earlier, the idea of players really synergistically linked. What I do creates the world that you play in. I have never seen a game push that idea as much here because, you know, the capitalists and the middle class, they start corporations and small businesses. The working class actually provides the labor to make them successful. Um, the working class player can just go on strike if they feel like they're not being taken care of so that their basic prosperity needs are met. The capitalist class has a completely different goal of just trying to recruit capital because they already have all their basic needs met, um, but they, um, you know, they have more. They have to deal with in terms of taxes because they've got payroll taxes in addition to corporation taxes. Where, um, oh, but I mean, the, probably my favorite thing about the game is the fourth player, who is the state, who runs the government. They win the game because this is a competitive game, even though it's very collaborative, and players are often working together towards a common goal that will rise all boats. It's still, at the end of the game, there's going to be one player who is deemed to have done the best job for their particular um, facet of society. And the state player, I so want to play them. Their job is make everybody else's needs met. They win if they are the ones through government subsidies, you know, uh, work for hire programs or, uh, you know, uh, under table dealings for the, for the rich fat cats, whatever it might be, they do better as when they gain more legitimacy by helping the other three players. And they want to help the other players to achieve their goals um, so that they can win. I love that idea. Everything about this game is absolutely brilliant. Um... This is another potential top of the list. The only thing that keeps it down, because, oh my gosh, the game is so brilliantly realized. And interestingly, um, the developers who have been working on this for years have brought in, I think, a half a dozen different real-world economists, professors, PhD candidates to um, provide feedback and help divide so that they could have a really, really... Um, fair and balanced um, representation of the way our real world works and the interplay between these different factions and how, really, at the heart of all our problems is everybody pushing ourselves forward. And so there's a fundamental message that I really loved here. I loved the implementation, the gameplay with all the multi-use card stuff was really, really brilliant. My only problem is, with the prototype I have, if you play a two-player game, one player's working class, other players, capitalists, there is no middle class, there is no state. You must play four player to get that state player in. And that breaks my heart. Because I'll never play it as a four player game. Um, but the developers have told me that they do have stretch goals that if they can do, if it does well, they'll be have the, the, the resources to be able to work with people to create Automa players so that, hey, you know what? Um, as a two-player game, you can still have the four-player experience because I could be the state and there's an automated working class player or whatever it might be. Plus, that would ultimately open the door for solo play as well. People are going to want to play this game solo in the biggest, baddest way. My run-through will be coming forward very soon because like I said, it goes live on Kickstarter next month. One of the most impressive and ambitious board game designs I have ever seen. And it answers the question, what kind of game would I want to create? Because I would want to create something that... I mean, Euros, which is why I love, are all economic simulations. But they're these weird economic simulations where everybody's trying to do the exact same thing, just do it better than everybody else. That's not the way the real world works. The real world, we're all doing different things and trying to do it better than everybody else. And so, Hegemony is an amazing title, and it's my number seven of the month. Oh, also... It's a little on the long side. I would love an express version of the game. Jen and I, we played it twice, and first time it was over three hours, second time it was like two and a half hours. It's a big old beast of a game, but it's brilliant, and folks need to be watching for it. My number seven, again, Hegemony. Okay.
Let's move on to number six, Titania Ascending, which is a, uh, a flip and write, and it's on Kickstarter, so it's a paid preview. And um, again, I think this goes live tomorrow? I'm pretty sure the day after my, this roundup goes live, I believe this will be live on Kickstarter, so you'll see my run-through of it then. But oh my gosh, folks, if you like... Um, uh, it is hard not to draw parallels between uh, cartographers, and because this is definitely a game that takes inspiration from that. Because this is a game all about having these Tetris-shaped pieces that um, represent different battle formations of fantasy creatures, um, you know, dragons and fairies and sprites and all of that. We are helping Titania, the queen of the Fae, uh, array her forces so that she can take back Earth from the greedy humans who have befouled it. And so... The game comes in two halves. The first half, we're just trying to lay out all of her forces, and we're doing that by um, you know uh, doing a multi-draft system where the card plus the associated room determines what you can actually put on your board. You're trying to squeeze them all in as tight as you can, but you're also trying to get the right things next to the right stuff to score bonus points. And then the second half of the game, you flip over all those cards, and now the cards that told you how you set up the battle formations tell you how they get attacked. And so you're you play the second half of the game, where everything you had built in the first half is now getting ripped apart, and you're having to decide, okay, well, I guess all of these units are going to die, but okay, these units will still live, and stuff like that, um, because the, the invasion of Titania's Ascendance happens in the second half. Now, this is all very, very cool. It's very, very sharp, very fun, really clever, um, you know, entwined drafting, you know, like Cascadia or something like that, really cool, cartography-esque, uh, flip-and-write, um, uh, you know, Tetris puzzle piecing together. But folks, I buried the lead. The most important thing about this game, cooperative. Oh yes. Finally, finally, after this huge explosion of popularity of rolling rights we've had over the last few years, we're finally starting to get some cooperative ones, which is what I've been desperate to see. The most brilliant thing about this game is we are working together to help Queen, um, uh, uh, Titania take back uh, the earthly realm. And so we are... And the, and the way the cooperation works is when it's my turn, I have to pick one of the battle formations and we both have to draw it on our own unique maps with our own layout. And so there might be, oh, this L shape is perfect for me. I'll be able to slip right over there. And meanwhile, you say, oh my gosh, I have no idea what to do with that. I might have to pass. I can't even put that on my map. Could you please take this other one instead? And I'm like, oh... Yeah, okay, I could make that one work. And so, the collaboration between players, because every choice you make affects me, every choice I make affects you, and we have to work to um, you know, overcome the uh, destruction that is ultimately going to be wrought against us. Very clever. Um, again, for lack of a better term, if you wanted a cooperative cartographers, where players are working together... Although, don't get me wrong, you can also play this competitively, and you can play it solo, but at its heart, it's a sweet, sweet, rolling white co-op game, and I want to see more of that. And it's my number six of the month, uh, Titania Ascending, coming to Kickstarter soon. That was a paid preview. Okay, let's go on to number five, Goblivion. Oh my goodness, I've actually had this on my Shelf of Shame. And yes, I know, people like to call Shelf of Shames uh, Shelf of Opportunity. And I, I support that, but I'm ashamed at all the games that are out there. Some of them, publishers have sent to me years ago. And Goblivion was one of them. And I, it's just been staring at me for so many years on that shelf. I'm like, no, this is the month. We will play Goblivion. And we will like it. In fact, we will love it. It's my number five game of the month for a reason. Oh my gosh, it's so sharp. This is a communal, cooperative deck building game where players are trying to train up a deck full of useless fantasy citizens. You know, blacksmiths and farmers and pickpockets and, um, you know, peasants. Um, because the goblins are coming. The Goblivion is here. And so they're going to be coming wave after wave, turn after turn. And when it's your turn, you pick, right, what kind of upgrades are we going to do? And uh, based on the upgrades you choose, we draw a certain number of cards. And if we can get the cards, all these different characters, to combo well together, because we're, I mean, we're drawing from the same deck, but we're going to get a unique hand of cards every round, we can start triggering all kinds of very, very cool combo strings to get the resources to be able to train our regular people to become soldiers and, um, you know, uh, ma magic users, or give them, a, a, what do you call them, big mechs that they can run around in and stomp the goblins. It is really, really smart. The cooperation is really, really good too. Although, again, like the previous game, you can there is a way you can play this competitively as well. But 
we had such a wonderful time because it's a case where uh, it's your turn. You make the choice. We both have to live with it. And it's going to work better for one player than another based on our special powers and whatnot. But at the end of every round, the goblins are always coming. And when one or more goblins attack, they say, right, draw this many cards. And then that's where hopefully I get to draw all the cards out of the deck that were the trained up super powerful cards that we've been working on so that I can make these really... I mean, by the end of the game, you might be drawing... 10, 12, 14 cards. Imagine playing a game of Dominion where, okay, I've got this round to kill these three goblins. I'll do it by drawing 15 cards, and now I will try to make a super epic, mega awesome combo of all those cards to generate enough force to take out the dragons and the goblins and everything else that are trying to run us over. Oh my gosh, it's so satisfying. Some of the most satisfying... I mean, you know that feeling when you're playing a pandemic-inspired deck builder where you get that one turn, it's like, oh, it just came together and I did this and I let me do this and this and that and the other. This game is full of moments like that. And the longer it goes, the more satisfying they get. And unlike Dominion, which can be kind of annoying, like, okay, can you get... I'm happy for you. You're going to do all that stuff. Can we just move on? I'd like to do my stuff. This game is all simultaneous play. Everybody... Nobody has to wait for the other player to um, figure out all the stuff before they can go. All the phases work at the the same time, and it works so well. It's really, really impressive. Um, and uh, oh, and then also another way you can cooperate: you can sacrifice cards to give other cards to your teammate. Because if they needed that, if they needed that berserker, that was the perfect thing they needed to finish their combo. Like, okay, well, I guess I'll sacrifice this farmer who I haven't upgraded yet, so that you can take the berserker and have a pull, and I'll see what I can do with the rest of stuff. Oh, it's so sharp. Really, really, I mean, it flew totally under the radar. This is the very definition of one of those unsung gems, one of those, you know, hidden surprises that nobody knows about, but if you play it, you're like, wow, why have I not seen this game before? That is Goblivion. My only complaint about it is, like Dominion, this is going to be a game where eventually you're going to want an expansion for it. Because it is, at its heart, a deck builder. There is enough in the box to keep you very, very entertained for quite a while, but I hope... I hope I put a worm in your ear that will lead to more sales for this game. Because um, the only thing I want to see is more content for it. Just like with any deck builder, eventually you'll get to the point where you want more content. Don't get me wrong, you'll get a lot of fun in the base box of Oblivion, and I hope um, that more and more people seek it out and find it. If you like incredible, combo-laden, fantasy, co-op deck building, you owe it to yourself to give Goblivion a try. Or if not that, it has a sequel, which is Dino Oblivion. But as I understand it, that's a competitive one. Goblivion is the co-op. That's where it's at. It's my number five of the month. A very, very impressive game that Jen and I both liked a lot. Goblivion. Okay, let's move on to number four. Bitoku. Oh my gosh, this is a monster, monster game. I know I've mentioned a couple of times in this roundup already that, man, this is one of the heaviest games I've played of the month. This, is, this game's got so much. Batoku says, hold my beer. You want a lot of stuff? I'll give you a lot of stuff. Actually, I think in my run-through, in my final thoughts, I mentioned um, this to me kind of feels like what would happen if uh, superhero designer Vita Lasarda tried to make a, a game, you know, uh, working with Prince, uh, uh, making Princess Mononoke the board game. That's effectively what this is. It's a wonderful Asian-inspired fusion fantasy world um, full of you know real myth and you know some additional myth they created specifically for the game. Really respectfully done. I mean, I. I looked up, I mean, they really did a lot of research. Um, but still, it is their own unique universe they're creating, and it's beautiful. The core gameplay is um, all about... You have a handful of cards, which are your assistants. You play these cards to get whatever their power is, but that will unlock a worker die. And then on a subsequent turn, you can send that worker die out to a board to do a different type of action. And then on a subsequent, subsequent turn, if you are in the right place at the right time, you can have those worker dies do bonus additional actions as well. And so, this game, every round, is all about trying. You have three cards, you're going to activate three dice. How can you get the most out of this combo? Of course, it's a deck builder. Uh, you're getting more and more cards that will be the helpers that let you unlock the dice. And the dice are the worker placement element of the game, but there's like multiple layers of that. And all of it is to drive, I don't know, like 
it feels like a dozen, but it's probably more like half a dozen completely unique, different paths to victory. Um, you know, trying to help pilgrims on their um, crusade for enlightenment, uh, trying to get the ancient uh, rocks who will whisper secrets to be heard, so you can, uh, which are special objectives, trying to build buildings. Because if you just focus on building buildings, when somebody unlocks a die and sends it out, not only can they do whatever the basic worker placement action was, but they can also activate your building as well. Kind of like Lords of Waterdeep vibes, and you will get a nice little bonus for doing it. There is so much in this game. I mean, it is hard to know where to start. Um, lost souls in the woods that you can rescue by recruiting fireflies and you like, uh, very satisfying, slot them together to unlock more special powers and get more points. Um, playing with little Kodama spirits, which you can imagine are the little, you know, rock critters in uh, Princess Mononoke. They're just fun-loving creatures, and you've got, um, you know, like, a track dominance minigame there, too. There is so much going on in this game, and it is definitely, definitely overwhelming. But the core gameplay is, hey, play a card, that unlocks a die. On a later turn, I can play that die, or on a later turn, I can move that die again. But it's all about timing. You will often sacrifice workers to unlock the dice without having to spend the time playing the card, because you're so desperate to get to that worker placement spot. There's a lot of really interesting compromises to make. The game is gorgeous. It's physically gigantic. It's long. And honestly, these are some problems that would normally knock it down a bit for us, because Jen and I, we like more of the 60 to 90 minute games, not these two hour plus super mega games. But the gameplay here was so good. And the world that we found ourselves in was so wonderful and inviting and evocative. Uh, we just absolutely loved uh, my number four of the month, Batoku. From uh, Devier Games, oh my gosh, watch for Devier. They are on fire. But anyway, let's move on to my number three, Bardwood Grove. Now, this was another paid Kickstarter preview. Um, and here's what I love about this game more than anything else. It is a deck builder where we are barge traveling around the grove, the Bardwood Grove, um, uh, basically playing our cards to... Um, prepare to sing. Every turn, you've got your deck of cards. You're going to draw two of them. One of the cards you're going to discard to do whatever it says. Whatever power is on the card lets you move around, lets you raise your volume so that you can, when you're getting ready to sing, stuff like that. The other card you will add to a collection of cards that represents the song you're getting ready to sing. And eventually, once you get the song long enough and your tempo is up and you've got enough volume and you're in the right place, um, that's when you decide, hey, you know what, this turn... I'm going to sing. And then that's when you activate all of those cards that you have put in a row. And you don't have to activate them one after You can like bounce around and get half of the stuff off of this. You know, I mean, the two main resources your cards generate are lyrics and melody. And they have different uses because wherever you're standing, you can interact with four different things on the board. And when you sing and you generate all the, and you do all these combo engine building type things to um, generate either a lot of melody or a lot of lyrics or a little bit of both, you can then spend it at all four different areas to um, learn more songs, to to tell ancient tales uh, and score points. But most importantly, the thing I love most about this game is there are monsters that are threatening the grove. And fortunately, there's no bloodthirsty heroes around to kill them. Instead, there's bards. And if we sing to the monsters, we basically soothe them. And they're no longer rampaging, and we literally rescue them. The game says you rescue the creatures. And um, so this is a game that is nothing but positive, happy, upbeat vibes. As instead of killing everything we see, we rescue everything we see. And then... As a little nice bonus, you can go down to the local pub and you can tell stories about how you faced down the brave creature and you returned it back to the wild. Oh my gosh, I just love the message of this game so much. I love the art from the Miko, who is my favorite board game artist of all time. Uh, this is from the designer of Merchant's Cove, which made a really big splash uh, earlier this year, and I covered it when it was on. So everything about this game is fantastic, but more than anything else, a game where you do something, an adventure game, a fantasy adventure game, where you do something other than kill everything you see. You never lift your hand in anger in this. This is a game about spreading joy and happiness wherever you go, while still playing really cool, fun, engine-buildy, Euro-y type stuff. Mwah! All the chef's kisses. I want more of this in my life, which is why Bardwood Grove, which was a paid preview, gets my number three of the month. Okie doke. But we're not done, folks. Let's move on to number two, Messina... 1347. Oh yeah, baby. Um, one of my favorite designers of all time, Vladimir Suki. Suki is back. Uh, every year, uh, his publisher, Delicious Game, gives us a great new Euro. In previous years, we got 
Underwater Cities, and then Praga Kaput Regni. This is his latest one, and it is fantastic. Interestingly, this is the first time he's actually had a co-designer, and I'm so sorry, I should have looked it up. If you watch my final thoughts, I talk about him collaborating with another designer for the first time, which really gives this a different feel than his other games. Although it's still... I mean, you, you play these... You know, I'm not sure who designed this, because Vladimir games have kind of a feel to them. This feels very unique and fresh, and it's really sharp. I haven't actually said what it's about, though. This is a Euro-style game um, where, in Messina, uh, Italy... In 1347, the first ships docked that brought the Black Death, that brought the plague, that would ultimately wipe out 50% of all of Europe. And so this game tracks the six years of the plague, um, uh, which is represented by uh, cubes that are spreading around the city. And every round, we are basically nobles who are trying to save as many lives as possible by getting people safely out of the city, using fire to stop the spread of the disease, and doing doing interesting worker placement stuff. Uh, you know, gathering the resources we need to do all the other stuff. The interesting, There's a few interesting things about this game. One is the fact that if we do actually save people and get them out of the city, they come out to our estate, and depending on... Um, sometimes they'll come and they're sick, and we literally have to quarantine them for a while. Um, but eventually, when they get out, we can actually put them to work, and they can actually help in our overall efforts to save more people. If you save rich people, they can generate money for you. If you save craftsmen, they can help you build stuff, etc., etc. And again... I'm going to be a broken record. I love games that have um, a, a, a story that is something other than must defeat everybody else at all costs. This is a, we must defeat this thing that is wiping out Europe. And the game has a really interesting arc because it starts out, there's not much plague. The plague really pushes up after you know, rounds three and four and five. And then you get to the last round and it really tapers off because that represents the end. And there's an interesting thing. At some point, you will shift your operations from rescue and stopping the spread and saving people to repopulating Messina. Because eventually you'll get to the point where there's not much I can do with these folks anymore. They've done all the work they can do. I should send them back to the city because the plague is mostly gone. And if you... And you have to spend resources to invest in them so they can help rebuild after this disaster. Um, yay! Um, uh, transfer of wealth! The game is all about these wonderful things. Um, then you can actually score points because then you own that section of the town, which is still a worker placement spot that other players can use. And then on top of that, this is not straight worker placement. This is a game where the first round you put all your workers on the city, and then in subsequent rounds you don't take them off the board. They stay on the board, and they move around to adjacent places. So there's a lot more thought that goes into the worker placement than most. This game is sharp. It's fantastic. It tells an interesting story. And another great thing about it, too... Um, Delicious Games, they were a bit worried about, in the current state of the world, bringing out a game that was all about fighting the Black Death, the plague, that maybe it'd be a bit insensitive. So what they decide to do, a portion of all the proceeds they make off the sales of this game are going directly to Doctors Without Borders. So here's the deal, folks. If you buy this game, not only are you saving the world in-game, but you're helping save the real world, too, and make it a better place. So uh, my number two of the month, a very, very, I'm very pleased, as always, with Vladimir Succi's games. And I'm, I'm so sorry I don't remember the name of the uh, co-designer. Again, go watch my final thoughts. Uh, credit where credit is due. And my number two, Messina. 1347. But folks, this is it. We've made it to the end. What is the new game of the month for October 2021? Federation. Oh my gosh. Now folks, this was a paid Kickstarter preview I did, as always. Uh, please bear that in mind. But wow. First of all, just get the other stuff out of the way. This game is gorgeous! More beautiful, colorful, vibrant explosions of, of joy on my table, please. Don't get me wrong. I love a dusty, dry, sepia-toned Euro as much as the next guy. Probably ten times more than the next guy. But how about a game set in the deep reaches of space that isn't just a screen... Uh, blocks full, uh, a board full of blackness and brown planets. Um, this game is just a wonderful joy to behold. It's so beautiful, but the gameplay is great too. This is a worker placement game where we are new alien species trying to work our way into the Intergalactic Federation by scoring lots of influence points with the existing uh, Senate. And what we do is every round, we have our workers that are our ambassadors who we can send to the Senate. And the Senate is... Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, it's, uh, I think it's a... 
six, a three by six grid of all these different seats. And the different seats let you represent all the other planets of the galaxy. And so if you go to a green seat, you're interacting with the green planet, which is the one where you can do engine building stuff and make investments that will uh, generate stuff for you over time. Or you can um, interact with the purple planet, which is the erudite planet, where all the smart people of the galaxy are. So you can get special powers that will help you for the rest of the game. Or there's the asteroid miners to give you the basic resources. There's the merchants that let you convert resources to other resources. So all the different five planets, which you can interact with by the, uh, the central senate board, do different things. But here's the thing that makes this game so incredible. It's a worker placement game. Every one of your ambassador workers, they're two-sided. So I talked earlier about how much I love multi-use card games. I love multi-use worker games, too. Because whenever you send a worker out, they're going to interact with the planet in question, you know, make investments, you know, convert resources, whatever it is. But if you put it with the um, voting side, you're also playing this little area control game on the grid, where whoever has the most votes in every row of the Senate will score points. So you want your high-level voters in key places, but you... Can you activate those seats? Because the key place might be a planet you don't want to work with. But you still got to get a vote so you can get more points by winning over the Senate. But not only that, there's the left and the right wing of the Senate, just like the real world. And um, each one of them, every round, there is a new law that will um, go one way or the other. And usually, there's a player who wants law, the left law more than the right law, or vice versa. So you're also deploying your votes, not only for getting those area control rows, but also getting them on the left or the right side to make sure the law that benefits you the most passes at the end of the round and becomes the law of the land, which is another way to score points. That's half of it, though. Because the other side of the worker, you don't have to use those votes. You can forget all about the politics. You can instead, your ambassadors can carry a little cash with them. And that represents you investing in those planets. Not only do you interact with the planets, but you make actual substantive investments. And basically, that sets up this whole other minigame where because you've invested in the green planet, you can now send your own little ships that you have to build and all that out to the planet to trigger all kinds of bonus actions you can do. So every worker placement spot, you got to decide... Okay, which worker am I going to do? Because you um, you have strong and weak ambassadors. They get better, you know, some of them have no power, some of them have very power. So, which ambassador are you going to send? Where are you going to send them? Um, what, um, you know, what planet are you going to go to? What row or column are you going to go to? Because there's different places that um, can get you the same. And then, what type of ambassador? Is it going to be the investment ambassador or the vote ambassador? And then, after you do all that, you have to make all the decisions related. This game is wheels within wheels within wheels. The closest thing I can think of it is uh, a wonderful game that came out a few years ago. Um, oh, oh, what is it? Oh, that's driving me nuts. 1847. All I can think of is the design. Okay, I'm going to have to look it up. I'm going to have to look it up. I am embarrassed. It's... All I can think of is Entiment, is the name of the designer. Um, let's see here. I need to find the browser. I need to go to Board Game Geek. Brussels! Okay, I'm stopped. Brussels, 18... 47, I think, was a brilliant worker placement game where every worker has so laden with consequence. Where you put them determines how you're going to succeed in an auction, how you're going to concede in an area control game, and how you're going to do worker placement. Federation takes that core idea even further. And it looks gorgeous, and it is a ton of fun from a relatively new publisher, um, Explorate, I believe. And both Jen and I were totally blown away by this game. It is easily my number one of the month. And I'm trying to remember, has the Kickstarter already launched or is it coming soon? For the life of me, I cannot remember. Kickstarter Federation. Let's take a quick look at that. It is... It uh, looks like it is up and running. Oh, and it's doing pretty well. Oh, excellent, excellent. Thank you, folks, for backing it because I want... I've got a, a ratty little prototype of this. It looks okay from a certain angle, but I want a real copy of this because it's my number one game of the month. It is absolutely phenomenal. Federation. And that's it, folks. I've done it once again. Somehow, I have uh, made it through a whole bunch of games, um, but I got by with a little help from my friends. Thank you, Shay, and thank you, Ruel, for uh, covering quite a bit and, and just really helping support me, helping support the channel. And uh, folks, 
that is it. I'll be back in four more weeks to do it all over again. And in the meantime, in November, there's going to be plenty more games played and plenty more episodes of the R&R Show. Now, if you want to know what's coming over the month, you can uh, hit that eye up in the top right corner of the screen and go to my coming soon, and I'll do my best to anticipate what we'll be covering in the month of November. A lot of really good Essence stuff has shown up at my doorstep. Uh, so, uh, that otherwise is it, though, folks. I am exhausted, so I'm going to say thanks to all of you for watching, and also thanks to Fun Again Games for sponsoring the show and helping me keep going. So that's it, folks. Thanks very much for watching. Have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, bye bye